I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 13. If you don't have a Bible, the uh, text is written on the back of the insert in the bulletin, the notes to follow along if you'd like to use them are there. Luke chapter 13. It is good to be back with you, back in the pulpit. Pastor Daniel, I thought, did an excellent job moving us forward in Luke. And this morning, a major section that we've been looking at over the last few months comes to a tragic end. As you turn to Luke 13, I actually would ask you to turn a little further back to Luke 12. Luke 12 begins after a conflict with the Pharisees and lawyers. Jesus went to a dinner party, and Luke 11 ended with the situation set. They've escalated their game. They're now looking to trap him, Jesus, in the things he would say. And Jesus, on his turn, in the beginning of chapter 12, escalates his assault against the false religious system of Judaism, its leaders, their hypocrisy. And in 12.1, he begins a public teaching, an extended sermon. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And as we went through that sermon in chapter 12, we noted that Jesus was highlighting Specific areas of difficulty for his would-be disciples. First, in verses 4 through 12, the need to persevere, to acknowledge Christ before men. The stakes are high. Those who confess Jesus publicly, he will confess before his fathers. Those who deny him, he will deny before his father and the holy angels. And then, a man from the crowd cries out, Teacher! Tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. We can tell that guy was really following along with what Jesus was saying. But Jesus, as a, um, was the best teacher, took this man's um, topic and used it to identify a second great area of, of temptation and trial for his disciples, and that is their relationship with money and wealth and the things of this world. And he warns them, verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he shifted into warnings about them being ready, being vigilant, as if his disciples might be tempted to become lax, to delay obedience, to eat and drink and beat the slaves. And Jesus warns them, he warns us, we need to live in light of his coming. We need to live in light of his return and that judgment where we can either be blessed and honored and enter his kingdom or torn to pieces, right? And then, verse thir- chapter 13 links with that sermon. It's important to see the context. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans. So Jesus finishes his sermon and immediately, Teacher, Jesus, did you hear about the men who um, Pilate had killed in the temple and mixed their blood with their sacrifices? And Jesus, again, won't be distracted. And he tells him, you think those men were worse sinners than you? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And they talked about the Tower of Siloam that fell. And again, warning them that, that the judgments that happen in this life, even though not all of us will die the same horrific way, we will all die unless the Lord returns. And that's really the real signpost. It's not a matter of how you die, but you will. And you will stand before God. And unless you repent, you will perish. Which led him then to tell a parable of a, of a fig tree. We talked about that, how Israel was likened to this fig tree that the Lord had planted and watered in a garden, and yet for three years straight it had borne no fruit. And the, the owner of the, of the vineyard wants to cut it down, but the vine dresser says, give me one more year, extra fertilizer, extra tending, then let's see if it bears fruit. And if it doesn't, cut it down. And we understood that Jesus was telling these crowds, telling Israel, look, God has planted you. God has put you in this land. God has protected you. He's given you his word. He's given you so many good things. And yet again and again and again, you are not bearing the fruit he's looking for, the fruit of faithfulness. And be warned, he tells them, because God would be just in cutting you down right now. But you're to get a little more time. And we noted that if indeed these Galileans whose blood was mixed was at a Passover, then that puts Jesus a little under a year out from his own death. So, They're going to get about a year more. That's important to note because Jesus putting this ticking clock for Israel out there. Be careful. The axe is laid to the root. It's just about too late. 
Then he goes to the synagogue and he heals the woman with the disabling spirit. Will there be different fruit this time? Will, will Israel evidence that they've heard his warnings, they've heard his rebuke? Will this go differently than previous Sabbath controversies, which Luke has recorded? And the answer is no. No, the leader of the synagogue is, is more worried about protocol than he is about releasing this woman on the Sabbath. He's, he's offended at God's messenger, freeing this poor woman from her um, burden. But there's six days of the week in which work must be done. Come, come and be healed then. And then Pastor Daniel picked up in verse 18 how linking with that, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And he, he tried to offer some explanation for why what they expected, even though it was biblical, wasn't the full picture. And yes, Jesus understood what he was doing didn't look exactly like, like what they would expect. But the nature of the kingdom is like that. It's like, a, it's like a mustard seed that grows. It's like leaven that spreads almost invisibly through bread. Yes, their expectations of an earthly rule of a kingdom, they're right, they will come. That's not what he's doing now. And then, as he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, verse 22, he was asked, will only a few be saved? And Jesus' answer was, you bet. More to the point, you shouldn't be asking questions like that. You should be busy striving to make sure you're saved. And he warns them. Let's just read that, because this is, this is key to understanding our text this morning. I just want to pick up, actually, and read, starting from verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. It's not enough to have an association with Jesus. It's not enough to say, oh, I know you because I did stuff around you and I went to church. Do you actually know him? And more importantly, does he know you? Note how in verse 27... Jesus says the way he can prove these people didn't know him was the lives they lived. We're not saved by our works, but the works and the fruit of our life indicate what type of tree we are. They indicate whether a fig tree or a thorn tree. And he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. The reason I think this is significant is verse 31 of our text opens at that very hour. Luke wants us to understand what we're reading as directly connected to what came before. And... One of the things we can pick up from this is this notion of being excluded from God's kingdom. In light of the, the parable of the fig tree, had to have national overtones for Israel. Now, Pastor Daniel last week focused primarily on the implication for us. We too, likewise, need to strive. But I want you to remember back in, in the beginning of chapter 13, he warned Israel, you're like a fig tree that ought to be cut down but is given another chance. And likewise, you ought to act, he tells them, with that time is urgent and of, of the essence, there's not much time. Scramble, strive to enter, lest you be shut out of the kingdom. So what will Israel's fate be? Well, we, we get the answer, the sad climax to this arc in our text, starting in verse 31 through 35. So let's read it, a familiar passage, a tragic passage, and yet revealing so much beautiful truth about our Lord and Savior. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way toward today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet will perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the tragic conclusion to the story. Will the tree be cut down? It's been given more time. Will it, will it grow and bear fruit, or will it be cut down? And, and here our Lord tells us it, it will be cut down. Israel will not repent. Israel will not change. Israel will not receive their Messiah. And Jesus' heart heavy with this um, pours out a judgment, and even in the judgment gives some hope. So we're going to work through this in, in three points, verses 31 to 35, starting with the Pharisees' hypocritical warning. The Pharisees' hypocritical warning. And the first question we've got to ask, and I've sort of played my hand by telling you what I think, is what are we to make of these Pharisees who come and warn Jesus? You could imagine reading them in a favorable light. They care. Maybe these are some of the Pharisees who believe. Maybe these are some of the Pharisees who are the good guys. And they're coming to warn Jesus, like, hey, hey, Jesus, just heads up. I don't think so. I don't think so for a couple of reasons. The first of which is we just saw back in 12.1 that Jesus broadly, without condition, labeled the Pharisees hypocrites. And he warned the people of their hypocrisy. So I'd expect from Luke, if these are different type of Pharisees, that he'd give us some contextual information to make that clear. And I think he does, but only to further confirm their hypocrisy. And the connection here is in that same hour. Why does Luke want us to see what they're doing? This is another way of helping understand these men and what they're doing. As coming with this message in that same hour. In what same hour? In the same hour that Jesus has just warned the crowds and the multitudes, you better be careful. You better strive. You better not delay. You better strive to enter or you will be shut out of the kingdom. And you will want to get in, and you'll want entrance, and you'll want access. And the master of the house will say, get out of here, I don't know you. Okay. In that same hour, these men come to Jesus and say, get out of here. And that's interesting. Are these men striving to enter Jesus' rest? No, these are men trying to get Jesus to leave. And it's a tragic, tragic signal of, again, their refusal to pick up his message. They urge Jesus to depart from them. That's the blank. They urge Jesus to depart from them. And here is the king. Here is God's Messiah. Here is the one who is the door that they can enter through, and they want him to leave. I don't think it's because they care for him. I don't think it's because they're looking out for him. I think it's because, as we saw earlier, he's been putting them to shame. And even though they want to trap him, and even though they want to, to, to get him, every time they challenge him, they end up with egg on their face, right? Um, verse 17 of chapter 13, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, silencing them. There's another reason why I think um, that the, the, they are not doing this in, um, sincerely. Point C, they are insincere, and inaccurate. You see, we've seen Herod earlier in Luke's gospel. Turn back with me to um, chapter um, 9. Just after Jesus sent out his disciples, we pick up from Herod. He was first introduced in 3.1. This is not Herod the Great who built the uh, temple of Jesus' day. This is his son. But he shows up in chapter 9. Verse 7, now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but some that John, that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen, and Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. He didn't, Luke doesn't say he sought to kill him. He was perplexed. He had questions. He wanted to see Jesus. Now, that's important because if you turn over to chapter 23 of Luke, pick it up in verse 6, Luke 23, 6. When Pilate heard this, 
he asked whether the man, that's Jesus, was a Galilean. And he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. And he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So last time we saw Herod in chapter 9, doesn't want to kill Jesus, wants to see Jesus. When Herod next shows up in the text, doesn't immediately want to kill Jesus, wants to see him. Now Herod will put him to death. It's possible there are sinister overtones. We know what he did after all to John the Baptist. But the narrator in the text twice, before and after this event, tells us Herod wanted to see Jesus. Herod had been wanting to see Jesus. So I think the Pharisees may well be exaggerating. They've heard word that Herod wants to see Jesus, and they sort of extrapolate that a little bit and turn it into Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. Get out of here. So I think they're insincere. Their message, I believe, is inaccurate. They just want Jesus to be gone. and That's the tragedy of these men. Here is the one warning them, warning them, flee the wrath to come. Strive to enter the narrow gate. The axe is laid to the root. There's so little time left. Hey, Jesus, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. That reveals their heart. I think that sets up the judgment to come. They have no interest in him and his message. He's, he's a bother. He puts them to shame. Could you move along, Jesus? Could you take what you're selling somewhere else? Because we're not buying. So now next we see Jesus' fearless reply. Jesus' fearless reply. Will Jesus be shaken that this ruler, Herod, is out to get him? Not a bit. Not a bit. Verses 32 to 33. He said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus' fearless reply. First thing to note, Jesus is not afraid of Herod and his power. Jesus is not afraid of Herod and his power. Even though Herod could put Jesus to death, he will actually be instrumental in Jesus' crucifixion. He's already killed the last and greatest prophet, John the Baptist. Notice the term Jesus uses to call him, a fox. Now, we in our culture can think of foxes as sly and cunning, and after the movie Fantastic Mr. Fox, maybe debonair and dashing. That's not the biblical picture. Um, The biblical picture of a fox is something weak, Annoying, impotent, a pest. Listen, listen to the taunt from Nehemiah 4.3. Remember when they're trying to rebuild the walls? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. What's the implication? A fox is this tiny, inconsequential little thing. That wall is so weak, if just a fox climbed on it, it'd fall down. Or in Song of Songs, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes, Spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. They're pests. They're annoying. They can do some little damage. If, if, if Jesus viewed Herod as a real threat, he might refer to him as a lion or an ox, something with force and power. He calls him a fox. Tell that pesk, that rascal, that vermin. Oh, and, and by the way, notice the way he tells the Pharisees to tell him. They even suggest that they're in cahoots with Herod. They may actually be working with Herod. Like, why would Jesus tell them, go tell Herod? I mean, this could just be a figure of speech, or it could be Jesus recognizing, you're not on my side. You're actually working with Herod. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course. It's clear and interesting that of all the the political leaders Jesus deals with in Sanspeord before Herod, and Herod alone is the one Jesus refuses to even speak to. Jesus does not honor Herod. He has clear, um, maybe contempt is too strong. He, he does not respect the man. He does not treat him respectfully. In this, he's following in the line of John the Baptist who called him out. Remember, John the Baptist was arrested because he was preaching against Herod's illegal marriage to his brother's wife. So Jesus isn't concerned about Herod. He's not worried about Herod. Herod is not going to be one who's going to take him down. He's a little fox. You're not worried about it at all. Which goes on to his, his next point. He will not turn from his mission. And that, those phrases that you see there are sort of Jewish colloquialisms. Behold, 
I perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course, which is a way of simply saying, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing today, tomorrow. I'm just going to move along. And he's just referencing the types of things he's been doing. You remember when he first began his ministry back in chapter 4, and he went to Capernaum, and they wanted him to stay there. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he's preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to keep performing the signs and the miracles to prove who I am. I'm going to go from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue. I'm going to do my thing. I'm not going to alter it. He will finish his course. Secondly, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, finish my course is 32. The third day, I finish my course. Now, when Jesus said that, I don't think there's anything that jumps out about the third day. It's just simply saying, I got things to do today, tomorrow, and the day after that. But for us readers who know where the story goes, the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to finish my course on the third day, I think is going to have some resurrection overtones, perhaps. And certainly that's where Jesus is heading. Because what he goes on to say next in point B is that Jesus will, in fact, go to Jerusalem. And what Jesus is saying is this, look, I am eventually, and in short order, in a day or two, going to move on. He is, after all, headed resolutely, resolutely to Jerusalem, but he doesn't want them to think for a moment that his moving on is somehow in response to the threat of Herod. Jesus is going to keep doing his thing. He's going to go from town to town. And when eventually he does leave this region, it's not because, oh good, he was scared of Herod and now he's left. He's heading to Jerusalem, but the, there's a great irony here. Great irony. Because he's going to Jerusalem not to escape Herod, but to face him, right? He will, in fact, meet face-to-face with Herod in Jerusalem. He's not going to Jerusalem to get away from Herod. In fact, he's going to Jerusalem to meet Herod. And he's not going to Jerusalem to escape death, but to die. So he wants to make it clear, I'm not running away from Herod. I'm not running away from him trying to kill me. When I move on, it's to face Herod. When I move on... It's to die. And he makes this enigmatic statement, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And here Jesus is identifying himself as a prophet. And and what he's saying is, look, Herod can't kill me out here. I've read my Bible. I know the prophecies. I need to die in Jerusalem. Sadly, Jerusalem is known as a city that like the people of Israel, rejects God's prophets and kills them. And so what will be done and what must be done will be done in the capital city. It can't be. I mean, there are prophets who died outside of Jerusalem. You can read your Old Testament, but the, the point of the irony of the statement is what should be the religious center where the temple is, right? Where the throne of David is. If there's any place where they're going to get the, the Old Testament right, where they're going to be faithful to God, no, rather, Jerusalem is known as, stigmatized as, the death place, the stoning place of prophets again and again and again. It's tragic. And it's this thought that I think links to Jesus' lament. I think we see now our, our Lord's heart overflowing as we move point three to Jesus' prophetic lament. Jesus' prophetic lament. It's just as he entertains the thoughts of Jerusalem and its history, not of receiving God's prophets, but rejecting them, killing them, stoning them to death. And the words here are passionate. This is a double address. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can think of David doing the same thing. Absalom, Absalom. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So see here Jesus' prophetic lament. It's prophetic because he's pronouncing judgment and he's predicting the future. It's a lament because he's just pouring his heart out here. So first, we're going to see Jesus' desire for Jerusalem. Jesus' desire for Jerusalem. And it doesn't doesn't show through in the English text clearly, but there's a theme going on in this text of desire. Uh, The Greek verb thelo. And we see it first in verse 31. We see Herod's desire, as reported by the Pharisees, is to kill Jesus. That's what he wants. 
And then Jesus is going to speak about what he has and time and time again wanted. And we see what Jerusalem wanted. They didn't want him. And so it starts with Jesus' desire for Jerusalem. Jesus' desire for Jerusalem. And I want to pause here and highlight the fact that the God we serve is an emotional God. Um, we, we read about that. And we can be tend to, to flatten those things out. But I suggest that if God made us in his own image and we are emotional beings, that God's emotional life is not less than but more than ours, more complicated. And here we see some of the complexity of Jesus' emotional life. Because just back a little further, right, in chapter 12, verse 49, what is Jesus saying? We, we studied this. And the, the, the theme that doesn't show up in songs very often, doesn't get talked about very often, but Jesus' desire and zeal for judgment and vindication. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. You think I've come to bring peace? No, but I tell you rather division. So there's a real aspect and a real insight into our Lord's heart that he is zealous for, enthusiastic about the judgment he brings. That, that's true. And yet here, contemplating that very same judgment, he is sorrowful. It's not just one size fits all. Jesus' emotional life is more complex. We need to recognize there are parts of Jesus in his heart, and his heart is God's heart, that, that is fully prepared and ready and in some sense yearning to judge, while at the same time we can speak truly of his sorrow over that judgment upon those who do not believe. And so the same gospel that shows Jesus, I came to bring judgment, a chapter later shows him pouring out his heart in sorrow over Jerusalem. And the challenge for us is not to hold, is to hold on to both of those, all those themes that we see, and not just the ones we like. We end up with a very shallow, superficial, flanagraphed Jesus, just the Jesus who's sorrowful, or the Jesus who's vengeance and, and, and zealous. And, and we need to inform our minds biblically the God we serve has a robust emotional life, and these insights in the Gospels reveal all these aspects of the heart of our Lord, his desire for Jerusalem. He speaks about it, point two, Jesus yearns to gather them up as a mother hen. Jesus yearns to gather them up as a mother hen. I mean, what picturesque language is that? I mean, what is Jesus' desire for this people? It's the desire of, of a hen for its brood, and this is a rich Old Testament metaphor. What does it mean then for Jesus to say, how often, how often I would desire to gather you up? Well, I, I'll suggest at least three things. Um, in Psalm 61.4, David cries, let me dwell in your tents forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So, so dwelling with God in his house forever is paralleled with taking refuge in his wings. It means life, eternal life. So I think gathering up would mean to save them. Jesus yearns to save them, that they may dwell with him in his house forever and ever. And listen to Psalm 57, 1. Be merciful to, God, to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Or Psalm 91.4, He will cover you with His pinions, and other, under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. I think secondly, it's Jesus expressing His desire to deliver and defend them. The Old Testament uses this picture of gathering under your wings as, as defense, refuge, shelter. He loves His people, and He yearns to protect them, to defend them. And third, to comfort and love them. To comfort and love them. It's a picture of giving comfort, is it not? A mother hen with her chicks. Listen to Psalm 36, um, 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 63, 1 and 7, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, 
In verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. David says, I, I, I feel your love, and I see your salvation, and I rejoice under your wings. So, so Jesus is here speaking of his desire, not once, not twice, but many a time, to gather Israel up, to save them, to deliver and defend them, and to comfort and love them. And I want you to notice something. He has this desire in spite of their wickedness. What, what begins this lament? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It's not because they're so lovely. It's not because Jerusalem's so valuable and precious. We hear that sometimes. You know, God wouldn't die for trash. You're valuable. No, this lament is front-loaded with, you wicked, terrible city. How often? How often I desired, I wanted to gather you up. This is the amazing love of our Savior and of our God. He, he has a heart for Jerusalem in spite of their wickedness. This isn't a testimony of the value of Jerusalem. It's a testimony of the love of our great God and Savior. He's fully aware of their wickedness. He's fully aware of their history. And yet, in spite of that, again and again, he says, I wanted to save you. I wanted to protect you and defend you. I wanted to comfort you and show my love to you. Which makes the next phrase so much more tragic. You were not willing. You saw what Herod wanted, or is said to want, you see what Jesus wants. What does Jerusalem want? They don't want that. It doesn't say what they want. They just don't want that. Literally, you did not want. How tragic. How tragic is that? Here is one who loves them in spite of their sin, fully aware, no rose-colored glasses on. He's aware of their sin and their history. And yet not once, but repeatedly, a heart that is sorrowful, yearning, I, I want to gather you, I want to save you, I want to deliver you, I want to comfort you. And Jerusalem wanted none of it. They did not want that. Tragically, Jerusalem was unwilling. Jerusalem was tragically unwilling. And when Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate tries to let him go, turn over to Luke 23 again. Luke 23. We'll see their unwillingness. Pick it up in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. Further proof, Herod wasn't out to kill Jesus. Herod didn't condemn Jesus. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And what stops that from happening? The people of Israel in one voice, they all cried out together, away with this man. Release for us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Yeah. Despite our Savior's heart and desire, they did not want him in the clearest, possible, emphatic terms. Thus, we move to Jesus' judgment against Jerusalem. Notice the same heart that is lamenting and sorrowful and yearning is fully prepared to judge. Behold, verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of 
the Lord. I don't think we get how significant, tragic, and devastating those, those five simple words are. Behold, your house is forsaken. Literally, your, your house is left to you. Israel, what Jesus is saying, Israel would be deserted by God. This isn't simply a pronouncement that Israel's temple would be deserted by God, but the whole nation. Listen to a, a parallel passage in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 12. I have forsaken my house. I've abandoned my heritage. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. The house is the whole nation. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, God is going to leave you on your own. God is going to leave you be. Fend for yourself. And if you look back over the history of Israel over the last 2,000 plus years, we see exactly that. Exactly that. Turn, turn to, to Luke 21. It's chapter 2 back from where we just were. Jesus elaborates on this a little further. And again, I think you'll see this is an entire national judgment, not simply speaking of um, the temple, which would more commonly refer to as God's house. But he says, your house. I think it means like your lineage, your posterity, your, your group. Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the side of the city depart. Let not those who are in the outer country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's not just Jerusalem, the whole nation. Jerusalem represents the nation. And in 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus would surround the city, and the zealots would defy and mock him, and Rome would crush with brutal and devastating force the insurrection of Israel. Thousands upon thousands would be crucified, murdered, the rest scattered to the four winds. And if you look over Israel's history since then, it's, it's just been one of a constantly being mistreated. And we see, not that any of that is good, and when we read of anti-Semitism, when we read of the, the atrocities that have happened, we need to mourn as well. But we see a nation who has zero protection from God. God has, has taken his hand of protection off them. Their house is left to themselves. They've been fending for themselves the last 2,000 years. The Lord will make sure he, they will not be put to a complete end. And so in the, during the Black Plague, it was common in Europe for the people in the towns to blame the Black Plague on the Jews, and they had to soak that up. They were They were attacked during the Inquisition, repeatedly expelled from nation to nation to nation. And we only have to look at our most recent history to see the Holocaust. And even modern-day Israel, back in the land, amazingly, are just besieged and beset from attacks from neighbors who hate them on all sides. This is just some of the consequence of those five simple words. Your house is forsaken. Behold, your house is forsaken. Tragic, tragic judgment. Israel would be deserted by God. But I want you to notice that even in this judgment, there are notes of hope. There are some who think that God is fully and finally done with national Israel. We've talked about that in our previous sermons, especially when we went through the book of Zechariah. And they see this rejection of the Messiah as absolute final. God is done. Jews are welcome to join the church. Jews are welcome to, to come by faith and enter into Christ's church. But never again, they say, will God work with national Israel. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, your house has left you desolate, full stop, next topic. He says, until. So even in this, this 
devastating judgment. There's no to hope. Until what? Until you see me and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you were here with us during uh, the week leading up to Easter, we looked at the psalm that has this quotation, didn't we? We looked at Psalm 118 on, on Palm Sunday. And as we studied through that, and you can turn there if you want briefly with me, um, just remind you of the context, because Jesus is saying this devastation, this desertion by God, this you're on your own, will last until you do whatever Psalm 118 Verse 26 is talking about. And in Psalm 118, I'll just move through it quickly. We saw a procession going to the temple to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. We've got a national worship Event going on, different groups shouting out God's praise. And from this group arises a lone figure. Out of my distress, I, individual here, called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. Is my help where I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And we understand that this is some sort of kingly leader figure celebrating a great victory in battle in Israel's history, right? Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So here's this king figure leading God's people in worship. Where are they going? Where are they going? Look at verse 19. They arrive at their destination. Open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then there's this antithetical response. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And we learn this is the temple because they're looking to make a sacrifice. So the king is leading his people triumphantly, praising God to the temple. I thank you that you have answered me and come my salvation. And now from inside the temple, the greeting to this king leading God's people to worship is this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This, this man who isn't thought much of, he has become the foundation and God will see work to salvation through him. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're indicating this king, this leader figure is the one who's blessed. After all, God wrought this salvation through him. He trusted in God and by God's strength, he cut down his enemies. And even though he was a stone rejected, and even though he didn't look like much, the Lord has used him as this foundation for this deliverance. And so the people in the temple cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, back in Luke, that until Israel is prepared and willing to respond to him the way those people in Psalm 118 respond to this king figure, coming to the temple, they will be deserted by God. Which means, until they repent and receive Jesus for who he is. As their triumphant and blessed king, and as their savior. This is the one who, even though he looked, didn't look like much, he was still in the builders rejected, they come to their senses and realize God has indeed made him the cornerstone. This is the one who, through the Lord, has defeated our enemies. He's put death to death. This is the one through whom salvation comes. When we cry, save us, O Lord, this is the one who answers that prayer. This is the one who is blessed by God. Israel needs to respond to Jesus that way. And here's the good news. They will one day. In our study of Zechariah, we read in chapter 12, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 12.10. This is a future time of Israel's distress. And the Lord God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's going to come a day in Israel's future. The nations of the world gather around Jerusalem. The Lord is about to return, fight for his people, and, and the Lord is going to pour out his spirit on them, and they're going to get it. And they're going to say, what have we done? Truly, we esteemed him not. You know, you go back and you read Isaiah 53. I think Isaiah 53 is literally the confession that Israel will make when they get it. Notice all the we, defi- we esteemed him not. We viewed him as stricken and cursed by God. I, I think it's like a further unpacking of what they're getting within Zechariah 12 here. What have we done? Who was this one that we put to death? And they will receive him, and God will come and fight for his people. So as terrible as the judgment is, it is not the final word. There's hope here. There's hope here. The Apostle Paul speaks of it this way in Romans 11, maybe even keying in off of this unique phrase here, the time of the Gentiles from chapter 21. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and he quotes Zechariah, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So that's, that's the judgment of Jerusalem. That's Jesus' heart of compassion for his people. This is the verdict on their rejection and the hope for the future. So what, what, what do we get from that for us? I think there's a lot here. Because even though Jerusalem and God's chosen people, Israel, are in Jesus' view here, I think we see something of God's heart to all of his image bearers. Do we not? In 2 Corinthians 5, we learn that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, as he preaches, says, God pleading through us, we implore you, be reconciled to Christ. No, I think the same heart of longing and yearning that we see in Jesus is the same longing and yearning he has for each and every one of us, especially those of us who persist in our unbelief. So I want you to know this. The the Lord Jesus desires to gather you up. He wants to save you. He wants to deliver and defend you. He wants to love and comfort you. He wants to do all those things, and he does it knowing just how wicked and crummy we are. He's not mistaken. He gets it. He understands what you did today, what you did yesterday, what you did last week. He knows it, just like he knew Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, that's the city that kills and stones the prophets, and I long to gather them up. There's nothing in your past that's going to change Jesus' heart and desire of compassion for you. He offers that here today, that he would save you, that he would defend you, that he would comfort and love you. The question is, will will you respond the way Israel failed to? Will you, going back to chapter 13, will you repent, turn from your sin, and flee the wrath to come? Will you come to him wanting to bear fruit, desiring to follow him, Will you be the faithful servant who, who intends to carry out his master's will, or do you just want to live however you see fit, doing whatever you want? Will you strive to enter through the narrow door? The, the arms, this is cliche, are open wide, right? He wants to gather you up. He wants to gather us up. But time is short. And make no mistake, the same Jesus who so lovingly earnestly wants to save and gather you, will judge and condemn you should you delay and refuse. We see it here. His heart is heavy. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And yet he is able to say, you're left desolate. He'll do the same thing for us if we delay and refuse. No, we see the heart of our Savior. We see the open and free invitation of salvation. I mean, why is Jesus, after all, heading to Jerusalem but to die? And why die? To die for our sins. Jesus on the cross, paying the penalty that we could not pay, satisfying God's wrath for us, finishing his course so that we could be forgiven, that we could be gathered and drawn near and loved and protected and saved. So how do we respond? 
do you want Jesus to move along? You want me to stop talking, get out of here, get onto the coffee and donuts? Or do you want to embrace the one who wants to embrace you by faith? Do you, do you want him who was despised by the stone that was despised, yet you see in him the one who is blessed of the Lord, who has brought this salvation? Will you receive him with joy and exaltation like those worshipers in the temple in Psalm 118? It's a free gift, but Israel didn't want it. And the offer remains open to us while the times of the Gentiles persist, to use Jesus' terminology. It's my prayer that if you have not come to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you have not turned and repented and fleed from the wrath to come, if you've not strived to enter through the narrow gate by faith, that you would do so even now. The time is short. The axe is laid at the root. We never know how much time we have. Don't delay. Don't, don't just decide to deal with it later. This is Jesus' desire for you. Now, what, what, what do you want? Israel didn't want this. By God's grace, we will. Let's pray. Lord God, what a marvelous Savior we have. What amazing love is it that sees truly without distortion, our corruption, our wickedness, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our history and our past, and yet in spite of that, longs, yearns, and desires to gather us up, to love us like a mother hen. Lord, that is your heart. That's your desire, a persistent one. And yet, Israel didn't want it, and I fear some here may not want that either. And so, Lord, let us also hear the notes of warning that you will not shrink back from judging, damning, condemning those who reject you in this way. Let that not be true of any of us. Let us flee the wrath to come, enter the narrow gate, and be gathered up and enter into your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a brief time of coffee and donuts. Please gather back here in 15 minutes or so to hear a report from our visiting missionaries, the Kolcheks. God bless. You are dismissed.